as the war progresses, the chain of evacuation gets a lot smoother. And actually just getting a man, you know, so the, the first stop might be the regimental aid post, which is sort of right um, behind the line of action. Then you're moved to a field ambulance. Then you're moved to a casualty clearing station. You're put on a train. You're given to a base hospital. You're put on a boat. You're put, you know, so when you consider the number of medical personnel that had to assist that kind of evacuation, it is amazing what they were able to accomplish and do. And they get much, much better at it as time goes on. They catch up very quickly. And by the end of the war, it is sort of a well-oiled machine. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire. It seems like plastic surgery is available to more and more of the population. Sometimes you don't even need a doctor. Anyone can plump you up with lip fillers and spas give Botox. In rich, privileged demographics in particular, not getting plastic surgery seems almost to be a deliberate statement. But it was not long ago that these surgeries were almost impossible. Accidents of birth, burns, wounds, everything else that might affect a face stayed there. Not only did this affect people's sense of self, it could also affect whether they could hear, see, eat, or even breathe. And then World War I happened. And suddenly, many thousands of men were having terrible things happen to their faces, things that, with the aid of modern medicine, they were actually living through. And doctors faced a huge knowledge gap between what they could save and what they could try to heal. Into this gap stepped some of the pioneers of plastic surgery. One of these doctors, Harold Gillies, is the subject of Lindsay Fitzharris's new book. She's the author of The Butchering Art, and her latest book is The Facemaker, a visionary surgeon's battle to mend the disfigured soldiers of World War I. Lindsay, welcome. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. That was a great introduction, too. <laughs> I do my best. <laughs> First, I wanted to ask you about some of the language that you use throughout this book. Specifically, you refer to people with permanent facial injuries as disfigured. And I was wondering why use that term? I know that you consulted with disability activists. Mm -hmm. What kind of terms do they prefer? Yeah, so this was really important to me when I was writing the book. I actually consulted with an array of experts, historical experts. I'm a, I'm a medical historian myself. I have a PhD in the history of science and medicine, but I wanted to include other kinds of people in the discussion because this book does affect different kinds of communities. Um, so I worked with a disability activist named Ariel Henley, who is the author of a wonderful book called A Face for Picasso. She has Cruzon syndrome. And we did discuss the term disfigured because a lot of times in the disability community, this isn't used anymore. You would say something like facial difference. But the feeling was between Ariel and me that these men were disfigured to the society that they lived in. And to call them anything else would be to be undermining or softening that experience. I often say that this was a time when losing a limb made you a hero, but losing a face made you a monster to a society that was largely intolerant of facial differences. And what these men faced in terms of those biases was enormous. So what Harold Gillies, the surgeon, was able to do was not just to mend their faces, but also their broken spirits. Um, so you kind of use the term disfigured specifically to kind of bring people back into that historical yes. sense and the extreme stigma that people were facing at that time. 
Yeah, I think to say that they had facial differences would have softened what the reality actually was for for a lot of these soldiers who had this kind of facial trauma. You know, um, these men, for instance, when they left the hospital that Harold Gillies founded that was dedicated to facial reconstruction, when they would go for walks in the wider community, they were forced to sit on brightly painted blue benches so that the public knew not to look at them. Um, It was a very isolating experience. And actually working with Ariel gave me a new perspective perspective as well. For instance, I had said that Harold Gillies had banned mirrors on his wards. And this was really done in Harold Gillies' mind as a way to protect these men so that they weren't shocked by the sight of their their, uh, injured faces, but also so that they wouldn't get frustrated with the reconstructive process. Because as you go through that, sometimes the face could look worse before it looks better. And I had really presented that entirely positive, but she asked me to think about how isolating that would have felt because it really instilled in these men a belief that they had faces that weren't worth looking at. And Harold Gillies himself is arguably arguably a product of those facial biases in society of the time, because although you have to restore functions such as the ability to swallow and to eat, he is going far beyond that so that the face is deemed socially acceptable by the standards of its day. Yeah, so I wanted to kind of go back to the beginning here and ask, what got you into early plastic surgery during World War I? I know you've been interested in the history of surgery in particular. Um, Is this something that grew out of the butchering art or did it arise kind of later? I mean, it's crazy because I get this question a lot. And actually, I mean... I I have a PhD in the history of science and medicine, as I said, but I call myself a storyteller first and foremost these days. So I really go where the story is. Um, The butchering art was about the 19th century surgeon, Joseph Lister. Um, It was about antisepsis and, you know, the pre-anesthetic age. World War One in the Face Maker is a very different book tonally. It's a very different book as well from the butchering art. I didn't know much about the First World War going into it, which is probably why it took me five years to research and write this book because I was starting from zero. I really was sort of at why did this event even happen? That kind of stage. So if you're listening and you don't know anything about World War One or military medicine and you've never really thought about it or had any interest in it, I was right there with you. So my job, hopefully, is to make you be able to understand this and and to fall into that story. But I did know a little bit about Gillies and his patients, and I knew that there was a really human story there. And and that's ultimately what I set out to tell. And I think with the return of modern or the return of old school warfare, I should say, in in places like Ukraine, the story is more relevant than ever. Um, The bodily harm that is done through these conflicts is extraordinary. Um, You mentioned that, you know, your previous book was on Lister and kind of the advent of antiseptic treatment, antiseptic medicine. Um, I was wondering, there there is a, a time gap there. What was the state of surgery in general like on the eve of World War One? Like, did doctors have access to antibiotics? Did they have anesthesia? Mm-hmm. What kind of would we recognize in the surgical suite that was familiar? Yeah, I mean, if people have read the butchering art, you know, you you will have seen advances go throughout that book. Lister introduces germ theory uh, to medicine, and there is the dawn of anesthetics as well uh, during the 19th century. And even so, on the eve of World War One, even more advances have already been made. But the problem was that advances had also been made in weaponry at the time, and so. A a company of just 300 men in 1914 could deploy the same firepower as a 60,000 strong army during the Napoleonic Wars. 
this is the time when the flamethrower was was invented. Tanks uh, became a thing. You know, before this, there were no tanks. And so this left their crews susceptible to new injuries that surgeons had never seen before. You have the invention of chemical warfare. Um, so all of this is happening. And the medical community, although it had advanced and continued to advance beyond what Lister had done, um, it, it certainly was taken aback at the beginning of the war by the sheer damage and the number of people requiring their medical aid. Men were maimed, they were burned, some were even kicked in the face by horses. Before the war was over, 280,000 men from France, Britain, and Germany alone required some kind of facial reconstruction. There was no antibiotics at this point. There was anesthesia, but anesthesia really hadn't evolved since 1846 when it was first discovered. So you're talking about a rag to the face, um, a, a rudimentary mask, and this becomes a real problem with facial reconstruction because if you're covering the site that requires surgical uh, uh, surgical need, then you have a real problem. And so actually what happens during World War I is the development of intratracheal anesthesia. So that's kind of like the B story to Gilly's A story, and that's all happening in parallel. So there was a lot of catch-up to do in World War I, and as a result, a lot of medical advances came out of this terrible conflict. Um, yeah, I was actually really struck by uh, something you mentioned in the book that Gillies would be doing surgery and he'd have to pause sometimes because he would get woozy because yes. the anesthetic was coming out of the person's face. Yeah, they were blowing the ether right back into his face and he would get really sleepy. And, you know, I mean, all of these problems that you just, you can't, it's it's unimaginable on some level. And when I started writing this book, it was just, it was really hard for me to even understand the extent of what he's doing because he has no textbooks. He has nothing really to guide him. Plastic surgery does predate World War One. In fact, the term plastic surgery is coined in 1798. And at the time, plastic meant something that you could shape or mold. So in this case, it would be the patient's skin or soft tissue. And there are ancient surgical procedures such as rhinoplasty that have existed for thousands of years, but they all tend to focus on really small areas of the face. And never before, except with maybe the exception of the American Civil War, had doctors been facing large destruction of the face. And so you get a little bit of facial reconstruction during the American Civil War, but even so, there's only about 40 operations on record happening during that time. So again, you know, 40 operations compared to the 280,000 men who suddenly need some kind of facial reconstruction during World War One. This is what ultimately allows plastic surgery to enter the modern era because Gillies and other surgeons are able to try and test new methods and for these methods to become standardized into scientific practice. So you mentioned that rhinoplasty, a.k.a. nose job, was first actually done in 600 BC in India. Yes. <laughs> um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that rhinoplasty. Like, what did they originally do? Like, what were the first nose jobs? So it was it was developed in India, this method. And it's actually, I mean, I'm, I'm not the kind of doctor who can save people's lives. I joke, you know, I can tell you how doctors used to try to save people's lives. But I believe that the, this method is still used in plastic surgery today. They used a forehead flap. Um, so a flap is something that hangs loose uh, and is attached at one side. So it would be attached to a blood supply. So it's not completely severed. Whereas a skin graft, for instance, is completely severed and moved to a different part of the body. And the way you might want to think about it is 
the flaps are the stakes of plastic surgery. So they they tend to be like a meatier piece of tissue. You have the skin and you have some tissue underneath, depending on how much um, is needed to reconstruct the area of that's been damaged. Whereas a skin graft is like the thinly sliced deli meat <laughs> of plastic surgery. So it's it's a thinner area and it, it's it's not. So if someone loses their entire nose, for instance, as they did in World War One, you'd really need a flap because you're going to have to reconstruct a bigger part of the nose. You might have to replace some of the cartilage and bone. So this ancient method in India was developed and they would take the flap from the forehead. So if you had a piece of string and you ran it from the tip of your nose to the top of your forehead, you would find out that the length of your nose is generally the same length as your forehead. So the forehead was a great area to take the flap from. So they would cut the flap. It would remain attached to the blood supply. They would move it down over the nose to reconstruct the nose. And then because the skin on the face is so stretchy, they can move the skin um, from the forehead elsewhere over that uh, area of destruction from the flap and cover that up. So it was a really effective way of, of rebuilding noses. And you might ask yourself, why would someone need their nose restructured, you know, in these earlier periods? But, you know, there was injury, obviously, uh, there were dual fights. You have stories of people getting their noses sliced off in duels, um, but also disease at this time, diseases such as syphilis led to a deformity called saddle nose where the nose caves into the face. So you wouldn't have a need for reconstructive surgery in these earlier periods. Um, yeah, I was going to say, I've been punched in the face plenty and I haven't been in a war. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That sounds like a, another story for another podcast, <laughs> different podcast. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I was wondering what, um, what other plastic surgeries were taking place before world war one. So like people wanted changes to their faces, like sometimes from necessity and sometimes because, people have judged other people's noses since the mm -hmm. beginning of, of time. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what, yeah, what are some of the early plastic surgeries that people were already getting? Well, you have to also remember that doing any kind of appearance altering surgery carried a lot of risks because there were no antibiotics. So you ran the, a very high risk of potentially getting an infection that could kill you. So people generally weren't embarking on this unless they were you know, somewhat desperate, like for instance, if they had syphilis and they wanted to reconstruct the nose, there were cosmetic surgeries um, that were done. There's a, there's a German Jewish surgeon named Jacques Joseph, who is in the face maker. He does some extraordinary work during world war one. And he was actually doing cosmetic rhinoplasties before the war on his Jewish clients who wanted to erase the perceived signifier of their ethnicity. So I remind people that cosmetic surgery as such was done as a form of survival um, rather than necessarily for vanity reasons. Um, people were trying to do that to blend into society because they weren't accepted for whatever reason. If they weren't accepted because they were diseased or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So you really only turn to the surgeon's knife if you, you had a real desperate need to do so. Um, but attempts at altering the face in earlier periods really, again, did focus on smaller areas, small areas of the face. You have some work done on burn victims um, by a doctor named Muter and people in the U.S., might know the Muter Museum, which is a fantastic museum in Philadelphia, which is based off his early collection. But again, not on any kind of real scale that was leading to the establishment of plastic surgery as a discipline and also teaching surgeons about what methods can become standardized. That really only happens with World War I because in essence, surgeons like Gillies have this opportunity to experiment and to try and test these new methods. 
So you've mentioned a couple times now, you know, part of the reasons these surgeries were so incredibly risky is there was no access to antibiotics. Um, what did they do instead to prevent infection? Because, of course, you wrote about Lister. Everybody yes. <laughs> knew by then that, you know, bacteria was real. Yeah. Pus well, it's not good. <laughs> and, and also, ironically, I, I have a, a passage in the Facemaker that I tweeted because, you know, the hero of my first book sort of inadvertently ends up leading, killing people in my second book because what happened was this new generation of surgeons were raised on asepsis and antisepsis practices. So they weren't really, they didn't really see infections. They weren't familiar with what they looked like or smelled like or, or how to treat them on some level because they just didn't have to deal with them because they were practicing asepsis. But when they get to the casualty clearing stations and close to the front, of course, there's all kinds of bacterial in the soil. Men are getting all kinds of infections. You know, bullets are ripping through their faces. Um, and, it, and it does lead to infections. And in fact, a lot of well-meaning surgeons literally sealed a soldier's fate when they would close a wound very quickly to stop the hemorrhaging. The face is extremely vascular. It looks very bloody. Anybody who's had any kind of head injury will know this. It bleeds and it bleeds and it bleeds. And so the first impulse is to close that wound. And so there were certainly men who died as a result because they got terrible infections. And some of them ended up in Gilly's care and he would actually have to reverse these infections and then um, you know, proceed with the reconstructive work. One of the ways that they, they did it, that in fact, there was a French American dentist named Charles Vladier. He's one of my favorite quote characters in this book. He has a Rolls Royce that he retrofits with a, a dental chair and he literally drives this to the front under a hail of bullets. And dentists at the time weren't uh, sent with the army. They weren't seen to be necessary, even though in the 19th century, they used to say an army that can bite can fight because you used to have to bite off the cartridges in the 19th century. That changes in World War I. So dentistry wasn't really... Um, you know, pe people went into the war, they didn't have toothbrushes, so they had all kinds of oral hygiene problems already. And then you have the face being destroyed. So it was a real problem. So Vladier actually creates this, this sort of drum-like instrument that irrigates the wounds. And one of the ways that they would stay on top of the infection was to constantly irrigate this wound, flush it out. And Gillies, of course, does this at his own hospital. There's a painting of a young man named Private Walter Ashworth, and he's his face is over a basin, a, a kidney basin. Um, and, you know, it's catching sort of all of the blood and everything that's kind of coming out of this wound. So they would irrigate Arrogate, you know, constantly. Once they got them to Gilly's hospital, he was practicing asepsis techniques, so they could control it as long as um, the, there wasn't a bacterial infection there. But you're, you're right; it was a real problem. And the other thing that they couldn't do in terms of the dentistry work was generally now you could have implants in, in directly into the mouth. So everything that the dental surgeons were doing tended to be on the outside. They would have contraptions that would hold the jaw in place, for instance, um, mobilize the jaws while other work was being done, but this was all scaffolding that was built on the outside of the face to prevent, again, uh, those kinds of infections that might arise by putting implants or foreign bodies into the mouth. And we'll get back to Valadier because I love him. But, <laughs> yeah, he is a character. <laughs> <laughs> your book has a lot of early characters in plastic surgery, and the main focus is Harold Gillies. And I was wondering if you could talk about where he came from, because he is not technically British. No, he isn't technically British. And what's so he's he, he well, his family is British and then they immigrate to New Zealand. He spends a lot of his childhood in New Zealand. Um, and then he comes back and he does his uh, early studies at Cambridge University 
university. What I love is that he's got a great, great nephew um, who's Daniel Gillies, who's a, a famous Hollywood actor. Some people might know him through the Vampire Diaries. Anyway, I had Wait, joked. what? That, yeah. <laughs> I know. I, it was so funny, too, because I joked that he should do the audiobook, and he now has done the audiobook, which is oh brilliant. Oh, God. Yeah. And, he, and, and they told me that he kept stopping while he was recording to say, oh, I didn't know that because he, I think he had grown up, you know, knowing about Harold Gillies because Gillies is such a hero. And I'm sure, you know, in your family, you would want to talk about it, but he didn't know all of the sort of backstory and details. And so it's been so wonderful to have the, a member of the Gillies family involved in the project. And they sent me uh, some audio clips to check some of the word, the, the pronunciations. And um, he has that kind of New Zealand twang himself. I think, I think Daniel Gillies was born in Canada, then spent some time in New Zealand as a child. And um, so he's kind of got this like mixture of a uh, accent, which I imagine Harold Gillies would have had to having spent time in multiple different countries, you know, in, in his life. So yeah, if anybody's interested in the audiobook, Daniel Gillies is reading the audio version, which is really fun for us. That's really lovely. Also, like, that's just very sweet. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it came as a joke because uh, for the butchering art, the the publisher sent me a bunch of voice actors, and one of them was named Ralph Lister. And I said, "Well, wait a second, is he related to Joseph Lister?" And they went back to him, and they came back, and they said, "Yeah, he is." And I said, "Well, I don't, I don't even care what he sounds like. He's got to read it." And so when I started this book, I joked on Twitter that in keeping with the butchering art, I would need to find a Gillies to read it, and I had tagged him in it, and he was like, "I'm in." So you know, I don't know what's going to happen. My next book is called Sleuth Hound, and it's on Joseph Bell who is a medical detective in the Victorian period, and he's the real-life inspiration for Sherlock Holmes. So I guess I'm going to have to find a bell <laughs> to read the audiobook. This is going to be something I have to perpetuate throughout my career. I mean, I believe. I believe in you. You've done it twice. <laughs> I know. I got to do it. Third time. Yeah, I got to do it. Um, so you also talk about a surgeon named, going to butcher this, Hippolyte Morstan. Yes, yes. Hey. No, I think um, I think you did that well. I, I'm I'm terrible <laughs> at the French pronunciations as well. So, um, so he was one of the first, and he was he was a surgeon to actually address aesthetics in facial repair as well as function. And I was actually wondering why had aesthetics lagged so far behind in facial reconstruction? You know, uh, prior yeah. to World War One, they could actually kind of reconstruct your ability to swallow, your ability to mm -hmm. breathe through your nose and so on. But they hadn't really focused on aesthetics. Yeah, it's a really good question. And, and Morriston, he's this French, um, very moody surgeon who's working in Paris, and he's also doing incredible work. Gillies uh, goes to observe him very early in the war. And this is one of the key moments where he kind of falls in love with reconstructive surgery. He later returns to Paris to see Morriston again, and he gets locked out of the operating theater. So a lot of these surgeons didn't work in a collaborative way. Morriston also wouldn't work with dentists. He considered them inferior. So I think probably his reconstructive work suffered for it, whereas Gillies much uh, later, and as you see, you'll see in The Face Maker if you read it, um, he takes a much uh, more collaborative approach. He brings on dentists, and artists and all kinds of people to work on the reconstructive process. He also, Gillies, takes on this idea of aesthetics in combination with the re restoring of function. And as you say, Morriston was also interested in aesthetics. I think the reason why 
early reconstructive work, such as what was done in the Civil War, um, wasn't focused on aesthetics was because, again, it was dangerous to cut into a body at this time. This is before antibiotics. Um, Any kind of surgery is going to carry a heavy risk. So the more you can minimize that, the better. And so if you're just restoring function, perhaps it only takes a couple of different operations or maybe even just one. Whereas if you're going beyond that to get an aesthetic um, you know, a result, you're, you're probably going to have to do more extensive operations and the risk gets higher and higher. But Gillies is able to somewhat control this because again, he's practicing asepsis by the time they get to the Queens hospital, which he had founded. Um, but the, what's interesting is that he discovers that when something looks good, it also generally functions normally. So if you return the nose to a spot where it's meant to be, it's going to operate like a nose. And so that's, he really believes that both the aesthetic and the functional go hand in hand. And of course there were other people kind of looking at the aesthetic um, parts of faces from a different angle. Um, so, for example, many people who are familiar with some of the medical advances around World War One might be aware of people like Francis Wood and Anna Coleman Ladd. Mm. And they used their artistic skills as sculptors to make masks that men who were injured could wear. Um, and, you know, it's really interesting because they you often see these in articles about kind of medicine in World War I and unknown things in history, um, the masks often very closely uh, resembled their own faces. And so it seems like this would be a great solution, but the soldiers actually often didn't really want them. And I was wondering why that was. Yeah, the the masks are, they, you know, I just did a Twitter thread on them recently, and it always kind of goes semi-viral because the images, as you say, are really striking. These still photographs of these men wearing these masks are amazing. They look very realistic. But you have to remember that if you were sitting across from someone and they were wearing one of those masks, it could be quite unsettling because the mask doesn't operate like a face. It doesn't have any mobility. So in a still photo, they look great, possibly not as, uh, as realistic in person. Um, A lot of people listening might be familiar with these masks through the character Richard Harrow in Boardwalk Empire, who wears one as well. The masks were non-surgical solutions, and some of the men did turn to them originally. Um, Some of the men wore the masks in between operations, um, but they were fragile. They were uh, uncomfortable to wear. They didn't age. And for all of these reasons, they didn't really offer the long-term solution. And you also have to remember that these men, a lot of these men didn't like the mask because they were uncomfortable. They wore the mask for other people. They didn't wear the mask for themselves. You know, ideally they could just go out into the streets and not be stared at. They were really wearing it so that people wouldn't stare at them. Um, so we have to remember that with this kind of, you know, technology in World War One, it was re- it was really for other people. Um, and, you know, some of these men, they, they turned to the mask makers for non-surgical solutions. But as I said, because they were fragile, they didn't age. There were other problems with them. Ultimately, a lot of these men did turn to a surgical solution offered by Harold Gillies or or other types of reconstructive surgeons at this time. Yeah, it's interesting because, as you mentioned, you know, you did a tweet thread. The tweet thread went kind of viral. It's really easy to find threads and articles about the masks and the sculptors who made them. But you don't actually see a lot of viral articles about Gillies. 
and plastic surgery. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, and Gillies in a way was creating a mask, like a mask out of flesh. And he was in some cases, he was creating entirely new appearances. You know, he didn't. So interestingly, the mask makers often were trying to replicate what the person looked like before they were injured. They would work from pre-injury photographs even. But Gillies was really open to letting the soldier invent his new personality or his new face. He would say, you know, what kind of nose do you want? And what kind of chin do you want? And so he was open to to, to that change and that change in identity. Um, but yeah, you don't get as much focus on Gillies. You know, a, a lot of people have asked me, is this a book about the Guinea pig club? So the Guinea pig club was world war two was burned pilots. They became very famous. A, a surgeon named Archibald McIndoe reconstructed them and Archibald McIndoe was Harold Gillies cousin. And in fact, it was Gillies who introduced McIndoe to the strange new art of plastic surgery, but because of the nature of world war two and the media coverage at the time and the romance of the pilots, this really sort of overshadowed the work that Gillies had done in the First World War, which you could argue was the original guinea pig club. Um, but yeah, you, you don't see as much. I th- and again, I think, you know, the the photos of these masks are really startling. People like to look at them. They're beautifully rendered um, and they have a really interesting side story as well. Whereas the photos of the facial reconstruction, they're complicated. You know, I had to really work to get the rights to even publish them. These are case files. These are patient files. There's a lot of laws in the UK surrounding how these images are used or how this information is accessed. So I don't think it's as easy for, you know, someone to spin it into a viral internet post. So you've mentioned this, we're kind of getting to this idea that, you know, there were huge advances made in plastic surgery during World War I. Um, And in many respects, World War I featured modern medicine. But it also sounds like kind of in the in the way that we've perceived it in modern times, there's kind of some leftovers from the heroic age of medicine. Do mm. you kind of get that feeling? Like, what are some of the kind of carryovers from the heroic men of Victorian medicine. (laughs) Yeah. The showmen that are in the, in the butchering art, you know, like I said, the the tone of this book is different than the butchering art because I think Victorian surgery kind of lends itself almost to a humorous aside because they were literally going into these operating theaters. People were buying tickets and there were all these crazy mishaps that came from, you know, outdoing one, one another in, in the terms of speed. Um, But yeah, you had, you do have a bit of that. Like I said, anesthesia hadn't really progressed much. Um, and obviously these doctors were going to sort of great lengths to in World War I to treat their patients like Vladier with his Rolls Royce. You know, I said that's very sort of heroic medicine, 19th century showmanship right there. And he works for free for the entire time as well throughout the, the war. So you do have a bit of that sort of hangover of, of showmanship, I suppose, um, with some of these doctors. But you know, this idea, I, I think that we had discussed this um, off mic about alcohol, you know, that the patient had been given alcohol in the 19th century. This is actually kind of a myth because alcohol would have um, thinned the blood. You wouldn't want to cut into someone who would bleed profusely. So pain management um, could be a real problem and can t- continue to be a problem in World War I. Uh, there is a patient that gets into Gilly's care. He's a burned pilot. His name is... Um, Uh, Henry Ralph Lumley, and he crashes his plane on graduation day. So he doesn't even make it into battle. And at this time, 
pilots were crazy. I mean, they would collectively call themselves the 20 minute club, the amount of time it took to shoot down one of their planes. This is just a few years after the Wright brothers. So the technology was really rudimentary. And he ends up in Gilly's care about a year later, and he's severely burned. He's highly addicted to morphine at this point. So he's in a really bad way. Um, and in talking about pain management, the morphine was a real issue uh, for a lot of patients. And he begs Gillies to perform the reconstructive surgery before Gillies really wants to do it. Gillies wants to wait a bit. He wants to give it a beat, make sure that um, Lumley is in the best health he can be going into the surgery. So Gillies gives into him. He ends up performing the operation. He lifts a, a large chest flap to reconstruct the burns on his face. And in the process, Lumley dies. His body just gives out. And it teaches Gillies a really important lesson, which is never do today what you can reasonably put off till tomorrow. Um, and that the face itself has to be reconstructed in peace meal. So it's important in the history of medicine, but it's a sad story personally to Lumley. And when thinking about the photos that I included in the book, I thought it was important to include the photos because I didn't want to put these men on the blue bench in 2022, but also I don't want to exploit them. So for cases like that, where the patient died, I decided not to include their injury photos, just a pre-injury photo of him in his uniform and a surgical diagram of what Gillies was trying to do. So there was a lot of um, ethical thoughts and discussions that went into the creation of the face maker as well. Yeah, I was actually wondering, did you consult with any medical ethicists about what you included? Well, I no, not medical ethicists, but I did consult Ariel Henley, the disability activist, and we we discussed it. And, you know, at the end of the day, um, some of it does come down to personal choice. And I obviously have to take responsibility. There will be people who will disagree with me, including photos. Um, there was a computer game called Bioshock that actually used Gilly's patients' images and, and created this um, game with the images of his patients. And this is interesting from a medical history standpoint, because obviously, Obviously, these men wouldn't have given consent for this kind of thing. They had photographs taken of them, but they could never conceive of their images being used in this manner. But, you know, arguably, they couldn't conceive of their images being used in the face maker either. For me, it's, as I said, it was important not to put them on the blue benches. So I hope that people feel that I've given their stories enough context, that I've given their, them a voice in this book, that we feel okay to engage with those images because I don't want people to look away. I think that you know, they were hidden from the public in the past and we need to look at them in 2022. Now, I wanted to get back to dentistry, which seems a bit odd, but uh, <laughs> when we think of people doing plastic surgery, we often think of people working on softer tissues, no noses, cheeks, mm -hmm. lips. Um, but some of these soldiers were missing entire jaws. Yes. Parts of their skulls, they were missing teeth. Um, so I was wondering how did dentistry, especially uh, the dentistry of people like Auguste Filadier, um, end up working together with surgery to yeah. kind of aid these men? I mean, this was really important part of the key to facial reconstruction, at least with what Gillies was doing. As I said, the Parisian uh, the, or the French um, surgeon, Morriston, he, he did not like dentists. He considered them inferior, so he didn't work with them. But 
Um, Gillies really embraced working with dental surgeons and he brought on someone called William Kelsey Fry. Actually, his grandson tweeted at me recently and asked if William Kelsey Fry was in the book because so much attention is often given to Gillies, but not to his grandfather. And I said, he is in the book. In fact, he, he appears in the prologue because, um, I drop readers in the face maker right into the action, um, right into the trenches in 1917 with a figure named Percy Clare, who gets shot in the face at this time. And I wanted to illustrate how difficult it was to just get off the field. Um, and Kelsey, William Kelsey Fry was uh, in, he saw a lot of action in the early years of the war. And there was a man that he helped get medical help and he had been hit in the face and he had the man lean against Kelsey Fry's shoulder, lean forward. And he walked him to get some medical aid. And then he left the man back there. And within 30 minutes, he got word that the man had died because they had placed the man on his back and he ended up choking on his own blood. So often what happened, because again, the facial wounds were so vascular, um, the, these men would end up choking if they fell onto their back or they would choke on their own tongues because they were missing parts of their jaw. Will, uh, William Kelsey Fry becomes uh, one of Gilly's right-hand men at the Queens Hospital. He's a dental surgeon. And Gillies would even say that I deal with the soft tissues and Kelsey Fry deals with the hard, hard uh, tissues and substances and bone and all of that. And so this was really important because how could you build um, a face without having the appropriate scaffolding underneath? And so that's why I think his work was so extraordinary. Again, it was that collaborative effort. He even brought in artists to um, help him visualize and to create pictorial records of what he was doing. So all of this aided in the ultimate reconstruction of these men's faces at this time. And I was also just struck over and over by the healing ability of the human body. Like, man, we'll grow when we'll do nothing else. It's, <laughs> it's yeah. incredible. I was struck especially by the um, technique called distraction osteogenesis. Oh my gosh. Because it's yeah. still used today. <laughs> Yeah. People and it's crazy because also Valadier was doing it way yes. before. I mean, I, like it, Valadier starts doing this um, and it basically what it is, is it's, it's um, stretching the bone. Again, I apologize to any medical people out there who are like, this is a terrible explanation of it, but it's essentially stretching the bone so that the bone regenerate, like creates in the gaps, like new bone growth will, will uh, appear. And this is really forward thinking. And he starts doing this um, in France at the uh, base hospital he's working working at. And it kind of disappears from practice and then reappears in the 1990s. So he's way ahead of his time. But, you know, you're right about the body being able to regenerate and to heal because there were cases where there was, there was one soldier who was hit in the back several times. He was shot in the back several times. He was hit in the face. And my editor sort of queried and he was like, there's no way that someone could survive this. And I went back through the notes and I said, he did, he survived it. And I mean, every bullet must have not hit anything crucial. And so he was damn lucky. Right. But he got him, you know, he got to the base hospital and they operated on him there. And then he ended up in Gilly's care. So it is extraordinary. Some of these injuries that these men sustain and survive is really amazing. Well, and they also survive the effects of the surgery because, you know, as you mentioned, we were talking a little bit about flaps and sometimes flaps were not small. Like this was not just something no. from your forehead. It was literally an entire face cut out of someone's chest. 
Yeah. Um, I mean, and, and, it, and, 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 you know, in the case of Lumley, the pilot, he dies because it's too much too quickly, but you're right that the flaps could be extremely large and they eventually, what Gillies does is he invents something called the tubed pedicle. So that's essentially a flap. So remember the flap is attached to the blood supply. The blood supply is called the pedicle, but it would be remain open. And the raw side was ripe for infection. Again, no antibiotics. So this is kind of scary to create something like this and leave this open to the air like that. So what Gillies ends up doing is he ends up rolling it like a tube. So all of the inside tissue is encapsulated now in skin and he stitches that up. So he creates this really long tube of tissue and skin, and then he can waltz them up to the top of the face. So he could start low on the body. He would create the, the tube pedicle. He would attach it to the new site on maybe up on the upper thigh. Once it took, once it attached the upper thigh, he would sever it at its original pedicle at original blood supply. He would move that. He would waltz it over to maybe the lower abdomen and up and up it would go until it got to the face where it was needed. Um, so the tube pedicle was, was a really interesting sort of evolutionary invention because there were other surgeons who at the same time had come up with this, but Gillies really made it famous. And it was born out of this great need of reconstructive surgery at the time. Well, and I was also wondering, you know, if you're going to take a whole face from someone's chest or even just a cheek from someone's neck or a nose from someone's forehead, like what happens to the open flesh left behind? Does it just heal over? Yeah. I mean, this was a question I actually was talking to a plastic surgeon about recently because it, it was, it is really mind boggling. Um, and in the case of the forehead, as I said, what you would do is you would cover it over with the skin. So I think what would happen is it, it depending on the area. And if there's plastic surgeons out there today, please correct me if this is wrong, but you would have this, this open sort of wound where the flap had been taken. You could use skin grafts from other areas of the body. Remember the thinly sliced deli meat of plastic surgery. Um, and wherever you took the graft, that would heal up pretty quickly. So there were ways to kind of patch up, but there was, there were several things then going on in the body. So you're moving the flap up to the face, you're moving maybe the skin grafts from a different part of the body. So there it's, it can be very overwhelming. And this is exactly why it would take years, sometimes over a decade for Gillies to finish the reconstructive process on a soldier. Yeah. It's like musical chairs with skin. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, 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 and again, he had no textbooks, you know, he's learning as he goes. Um, and my husband is an artist. And a lot of times I would have to, I would be reading these case notes and I would say, what is he, how is he doing this? I can't visualize this. And so Adrian would have to sketch out, you know, what, what, it, what it exactly was happening or how, you know, the flaps were being moved. And so I do think that Gillies was sort of the right person at the right time because he was creative as well as a scientific and that really bode well. He was a competent artist. Um, he was an, you know, he, he was kind of one of those annoying people who was good at everything he had done. He was a great sportsman. He was very well-rounded. He really appreciated uh, creativity and art artistry. And um, I think that boded well with the plastic surgery and what he was attempting to do. So I wanted to go back a little bit because we've been talking about flaps. And then you mentioned that sometimes someone would take a graft and use a graft to cover an area that got pulled up by a flap. And then the flap would go <laughs> onto the face. Um, what is the difference between the graft and the flap. I know you mentioned the flap is thicker, the graft mm -hmm. is thinner. If the graft is thinner and heals faster, why not just use grafts? Like, why are we spending all this time creating skin tubes? And well, so flaps? yeah, and that's such a good question. So the flap is, is remember, is connected also to the 
blood supply, whereas the graft is cut free. Um, so that's, that makes it easier in a way to move, you know, the skin graft. But the problem is that again, if you have someone's, if you can picture like a nose being completely blown off the face, a skin graft is not going to cut it. Like the thin deli meat is not going to be enough. So the flap is usually, uh, uh, more tissue. So you have, you know, underlying tissue that is also moved with the flap. And so that will help you rebuild a bigger section of the face that's missing tissue. And you really have to kind of build that up. You can't just use a skin graft in those cases. And would skin grafts also get rejected sometimes? Like, would they fail to bond? They could. They definitely could fail to bond. I mean, obviously, you know, later, actually, Gillies is using sometimes skin grafts from other patients onto some, you know, uh, new patients. So that's an interesting, that starts to develop in World War One as well. And you could certainly get rejection of the tissue. Um, but I think uh, the other thing was that it could be prone to infection. Remember, you're taking it off of its blood supply. So it has to form a new blood supply rather quickly for it to be successful. So there was a bit of a trial and error with that. And you have things like pinch grafting in the 19th century, where they're taking really small bits um, of skin and grafting on. And you even have a surgeon. I, I discussed a surgeon in the 19th century who creates a, a special knife so he can measure the evenness of the skin graft. Um, but you don't have a lot of that going on in these earlier periods because they could be risky. And you've mentioned this before, and I wanted to make sure that we go back to it. Gillies started a specialty hospital in England for the treatment of facial wounds. And so he got people who had been stitched up at the front and then they send them back. And I was really struck by something that you mentioned recently and that you emphasized several times in the book that often soldiers were harmed by the very doctors who were trying to save them because they would just sew things up. Mm -hmm. Yes. Why were the doctors at the front sewing things up (laughs) and producing these complications? Well, I mean, if you can imagine the chaos of the front as well, especially in those early years, you know, the battle of the Somme. I mean, if you don't know anything about world war one, you'll probably recognize the battle of the Somme. It was an absolutely horrific battle on the very first day of the hundred thousand British soldiers who took place in it, 60,000 died or were injured. So it was huge amount of casualties. And there was a real breakdown in the evacuation chain at that point. So you had the casualty clearing stations just covered with casualties, like laying in the grass and stretchers just needed help. And so there was a lot of chaos going on at the front. You weren't really, you know, engaging with these patients on a personal level. You were just trying to stop the bleeding, stop the hemorrhaging, save a life. So again, a lot of times perhaps there wasn't consideration in cleaning out a wound. And that's why I said earlier that a soldier's fate could literally be sealed up by a surgeon who just hastily sewed up wound and didn't irrigate it, irrigate it properly. And so a bacterial infection would, would get in place. I don't think we can really judge that scenario though, because it was chaotic. It was bloody. It was shocking. I mean, a lot of these doctors had never witnessed anything like that and why would they have? And so um, mistakes were definitely made as the war progresses. The chain of evacuation gets a lot smoother and actually just getting a man, you know, so the, the first stop might be the regimental aid post, which is sort of right um, behind the line of action. Then you're moved to a field ambulance. Then you're moved to a casualty clearing station. You're put on a train. You're given to a base hospital. You're put on a boat. You're put, you know, so when you consider the number of medical personnel that had to assist that kind of evacuation, it is amazing what they were able to accomplish and do. And they get much, much better at it as time goes on. They catch up very quickly. And by the end of the war, it is sort of a well-oiled machine. Well, and 
of course, if a field hospital has the choice between letting someone bleed out through the face or sewing it up. Exactly. That's exactly right. The point. Yeah. So, I mean, you would be doing everything you can to stop the immediacy of death. And, you know, Gillies was in a unique position because he developed personal relationship with his patients because he was with them for many years, some in some cases over a decade. Whereas these trauma surgeons at the front, I mean, you didn't even know the person's name. They were just being brought in. You were sewing off a leg. You know, there were people that were volunteers that were being brought in to anesthetize these men. They didn't even have any medical background in some cases. It was really chaotic and really awful. And um, there wasn't much time to assess or think. And a lot of these, these surgeons and these nurses, they were overworked, they were tired, they were, you know, working on very little food and in sleep. And so, yeah, a lot of mistakes were made, but actually what they were able to accomplish um, given the challenges was extraordinary. And you've mentioned this a couple of times now. It is boggling how many surgeries some of these men had to undergo they Mm. decades of surgeries because every bit had to be done and then healed and then done and then healed and people had as many as 40 surgeries yes was it common in your research to see people kind of lose steam and stop did a surprising number stick with it Yeah, I think, you know, that's such a great question. And, you know, one of the things that I do when I was an academic, I'm I'm now just a a commercial writer, but as an academic historian, it's about collecting as much information and, you know, putting into this huge definitive tome and history. And that's not what the face maker is. And so a lot of what I do now is discard material. I get rid of stuff because I don't want to overwhelm the reader. So I chose a handful of men who stood out to me that I wanted to tell their stories. But of course, there were hundreds and hundreds of patients that feel worked on. I imagine that there were people who just got tired of it. They gave up. Some some of these men also were moved out of the hospital um, to convalesce at home and they just Never, they got lost in the system. They never made it back. There's there's someone I talk about, I believe it's towards the end of the book where he he comes back like years later and he still has one of those two pedicles you know, like hanging from his face. And he somehow got lost in the shuffle. And and um, you know, and Gillies was like, What have you been doing this whole time? And so that that certainly happened as well. There were men who later came back to Gillies, many, many years later, came back to Gillies and underwent further reconstructive surgery as he grew as a reconstructive surgeon. Um, there's a man um, named Private Walter Ashworth, who I talked about, who fell forward in the, in the Battle of the Somme. And much, much later, decades later, he bumps into Gillies in Australia. And Gillies asks if he can have another go at his face. And actually, Ashworth declines because he had made peace with the face that Gillies had given him at that point. But there were men who, you know, they would return decades later, potentially, or they went through reconstructive surgery with other surgeons. So it never really ended. Um, and when the epilogue hits of this book, I, I hope that that point comes across that the war is over for a lot of people, but it's not over for these men. And the reconstructive work continues for many, many years. And of course, the book is about Gillies and about his patients. But I also love that you use the opportunity to kind of take a tour of some of the other amazing advances that occurred in medicine during the war. And in particular, Prior to World War One, they didn't really have a lot of options for blood transfusions. Yeah. Yeah. Like they knew blood could be transfused. 
Yeah, there was some crazy stuff that happened in earlier periods. Like they tried to transfuse sheep blood into humans. And by the way, that that's a really bad idea, guys. Don't um, do that. So don't try it at home. Don't try that at home. I mean, there was. And so I actually I, I went down a rabbit hole with the blood transfusions. And my editor was like, you got to cut this way back because like it's it's kind of killing the um the momentum of the story, which I, I appreciate. But so I had to really cut a lot of that back because there was so much more interesting stuff to say. But you're right that the on the eve of the First World War, they knew how to transfuse blood and there were some advances being made um, in identifying and um, blood matching, for instance, um, you know, some breakthroughs in that. But it's really in World War One that this issue becomes forced. And there's a guy named Oswald Robertson who actually is credited for creating the first blood banks. And he does this with empty shell casings near the front. And um, it wasn't being done certainly on the scale that it was later done in World War II, but it was being done enough that it made a measurable impact on some of the lives of these soldiers. And what I found amazing, and you've mentioned this um, in our talk, Gillies hospitals did not just have surgeons and dentists and doctors. They had artists and photographers. What were these artists for? This is, I mean, this is one of my favorite parts too, because I'm married to an artist who actually designed the cover as well of the face maker. Um, and we could talk about that in a minute, but the artists were really important. They were brought on. I mean, at first Gillies kind of thought that he might take some art lessons himself. He recognized that what he was doing was revolutionary and that there needed to be a pictor- like pictorial evidence of what he was doing. Um, but he, you know, he was stretched very thin and he was only sort of a competent artist, not a great artist. I wouldn't call him. There's and, definitely a note in the book that one of the artists like gives him <laughs> yeah, a yeah, vicious he, I know, he compliment. Br- he, <laughs> he brings like these like little portraits he's done out and she just she she really gives like a scathing criticism of it and he kind of walks off all hurt and it's it's quite funny and sad at the same time. But but the it, he was working at the Cambridge Military Hospital in Aldershot. He had just established a specialty unit for facial reconstruction, which later he would then establish the Queen's Hospital because there was just such a huge need that they needed a they needed a bigger boat, and so he establishes a, a whole hospital for it. But at the time um, he was at the Cambridge Military Hospital, he came in contact with a guy named Henry Tonks, who at the he was famous artist already by then, and he was actually a physician as well. But he had given up medicine in order to pursue art. And Henry Tonks felt really useless in the war. He was a bit older at that point, and and so Gillies approaches him, and so he comes on board on the team, and he creates these amazing portraits of the men, which are important because the photographs are in black and white. And and what he's able to do is capture it in all the vivid colors, you know, the lurid greens and the crimson reds. And um, but he also creates, you know, surgical diagrams. He's in the operating room. He's drawing what Gillies is doing. And this is really important later to the establishment of plastic surgery as a discipline because it teaches a new generation how to replicate these procedures. And so Tonks is one of many artists who ends up working with Gillies um, and the team at the Queen's Hospital. And you note, of course, that Gillies ended up publishing books on plastic surgery, and they are still used today. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the impact 
of these early plastic surgery books. I mean, the books are more than a hundred years old. I know. And I have both of them here. And one in the second one is actually a two volume, but the first one was called plastic surgery, the fate of the face, which he um, published very shortly after world war one. And then the second one was the principles and art of plastic surgery. And that's the one that plastic surgeons still know and use today. In fact, a lot of the interviews I'm doing ahead of the book's release on June 7th is with plastic surgeons who just, they love Gillies, you know, and they're, they're not that many generations removed because Gillies continues to operate, you know, past World War One into the 50s. And so if you think about it, there, there's, so the man who co-wrote the second book with him, I was being interviewed by a plastic surgeon who had met that man. So that man had met Gillies when he was in his 30s. His name was Ralph Millard. And then this man who interviewed me recently met Ralph Millard when he was a young surgeon. So it's not that far removed from Gillies, which is extraordinary as well. So the principles and art of plastic surgery continue continues to be used um, and certainly known by plastic surgeons today. And with the book cover, um, what had happened is like pe- people don't realize that authors don't generally have a lot of control over their book covers. So my publisher came out with a design. I hated it. <laughs> I hope they don't no. hate me saying this. I hated it. I it just it felt all wrong. It felt Victorian. They used the same font for the butchering art. I didn't like any of it. It didn't feel right for this World War One story. So my husband, who's an artist, came up with the concept. We were on vacation, and he literally drew it on the back of a napkin. And the so the. Principles in Art of Plastic Surgery, the cover of Gilly's book is a photo of his hands holding a scalpel and his hands are over a green tarp, a surgical green tarp. So what we did with the face maker for the U.S. cover is that it's on that green background, which I love that kind of army green or surgical green. And it is, you can see the surgeon's hand. This is all hand drawn. You can see the surgeon's hand and it's holding a scalpel, but in the reflection of the scalpel is a banded surgeon's, uh, a banded soldier's face. And I love it because this book, although it's called the face maker, it's not just about one one man, but about many men. And I love that there's that kind of reflection and there's a nod to Gilly's own book cover. Um, so people who are familiar with Gilly's, especially plastic surgeons and are familiar with this book, hopefully see that kind of mirroring in this book cover. And of course, you know, this book is about many men. And one of the things that comes through really beautifully is the voices and experiences of the soldiers who are undergoing these surgeries. And you mentioned you had tons of stories, tons, and you could only (laughs) use a few. Where did you get these stories and how did you decide which you would tell? Well, this took a long time. I mean, five years. Commercially speaking, that's a long time. Usually like your agent wants those books coming out a little bit sooner. Um, But I was starting from the beginning, you know, why did World War I even begin? You know, I mean, I was really starting at a base level knowledge. Um, And like I said, what I do is discard a lot of material. So I make sure that that narrative is really fast and that a general reader isn't getting bogged down in too many of the details, but is still getting a sense of the error and the period in the subject. Um, there's a ton of case notes from Gillies that still exist. Some of the case notes actually were destroyed in World War II, which I address in the epilogue, um, which is kind of ironic that these men couldn't even escape, you know, in, in some sense, uh, damage in World War II. So a lot of their case files were destroyed when a, uh, the Royal College of Surgeons was bombed here in London. Um, there was, um, you know, there's letters, there's diaries, there's just so much material. And I opened the book with Percy Clare getting shot in the face. 
And I chose him because he wrote this extraordinary diary about his experiences. Um, and he described everything, including being sent to the wrong hospital in such a detailed and wonderful way that I knew that I, I was going to have to use that um, to kind of pin to the front of the book. And then you meet Percy Clare throughout uh, various parts of the story as well. And his relative, um, who her name's Rachel Gray, I guess she's the great, great niece um, of Percy Clare. It was her father who found the diary and gave it over to the Imperial War Museum. And I, I've, I've had a few email exchanges with her and she doesn't know much about him. So this is going to be really fun for her, hopefully, to read and to learn about his extraordinary experiences during the First World War. And I asked her, you know, do you have some photos? And she said, yeah, I, I have a photo album, but we just had this flood. I was like, oh, and, you know, a historian in me goes, oh, no, you know. And so she sent it to me and the photos were in plastic. And so I couldn't take them out because there had been water damage. And if you take it out, like it could, the image could peel off. And so um, I scanned the images and then a friend of mine named Jordan Lloyd restored the photos and they're extraordinary. And at some point on social media, I'm going to put the before and after because he does such a wonderful job of these, these photos of Percy Clare. But one of the challenges as a historian was Percy Clare's uh, records, surgical records were one of the ones that was destroyed. So I, I only really have Percy's words about his experiences. I don't have you know, his patient photos, for instance. Um, I only have photos of him later in life, but he looked, I mean, if you look at the photos, I'll send you that photo insert since you didn't get to see that. If you look at the photos, um, you, you can't really even tell there was damage to his face. And of course, Gillies lived through World War I. And after the war, he decided to try and kind of make plastic surgery happen. Um, and one of the things that he ended up doing that I found really lovely is that he did one of the first gender confirmation surgeries on a man mm -hmm. named Michael Dillon. Yeah, this is amazing, isn't it? I, I mean, that made me so happy. <laughs> <laughs> I know, finally, a hero from the past that is actually a hero from the past that we can, you know, he he wasn't, you know, Gillies wasn't problematic. Um, you know, Gillies continued to operate even during World War II, um, and he was extremely interested in surgical challenges. Michael Dillon was a trans man who approached him in 1945, just as World War II was ending, um, to do the phalloplasty surgery. Gillies put it off a couple years because he was still reconstructing soldiers at that time from World War II. But Gillies was really well-placed because he also, at the time during World War II, was working on genital reconstruction of soldiers who had been injured. So he was really well-placed as a plastic surgeon, as a reconstructive surgeon. So he decided to take this on. And he also protected Michael Dillon's identity as a trans man by giving him a false diagnosis so that when he came into the clinic, other people working there didn't necessarily know why he was coming there. And over the several years, he was able to perform the first ever successful phalloplasty on a trans man in 1949. So this is much earlier than probably people really realized that this type of surgery was going on. Michael Dillon was eventually outed by the British press. There was a media frenzy and he ended up sadly having to leave Britain. But in his diaries, he notes that Gillies really stood by him and offered his support. And so I said that there were not a lot of people in 1949 who would have seen Michael Dillon as a man, but Harold Gillies wasn't one of them. And finally, the thing that really, well, there are two things that come across um, from this book. The first is medical advances can happen at astonishing speed. But the most mm. important thing is that war is terrible. <laughs> yes. And yeah. I was wondering why, why is it important that people know about Gillies and about early plastic surgery? 
I think, you know, a lot of people are going to gravitate towards that positive message about the medical advances coming of the First World War, because nobody wants to think that we, uh, you know, participated in such an inhuman event and nothing good came of it. And while there is truth to that, and certainly a lot of the advances that came out of World War I continue to serve us today, there is also the grim realization that these advances prolonged the war because as doctors and nurses got better at patching these men up, these men were then being sent back to the front and it was feeding the war machine. So it was a real vicious cycle. I'm a storyteller. Um, I tell the story how I think it should be told. But what's been interesting in interviews is that there are people who say this is a great anti-war book. And there are other people who say this is a book about heroes. And there's truth to both of those interpretations. But I definitely lean heavily into the violence because, of course, you know, these experiences that these men had, I feel like I wouldn't be doing them justice if I wasn't explaining exactly what it was like to be dropped into this horrific war. And some of these men weren't even men. They were boys. They were 15, 16 years old, lying about their age, suddenly being dropped into this terrible situation. I think the take home, um, you know, is I, I hope that this kind of raises the collective conscious about, you know, where these medical advances come from. And as we see the return of, you know, old school warfare, again, like with the conflict in Ukraine, that we really think about the bodily harm that these conflicts create and also about the many men and women out there who then step up to help and provide medical aid during these terrible times. Well, Lindsay, thank you so much for being here to show us the face of early plastic surgery. Thank you for having me. If you'd like to learn more about Lindsay and her book, The Facemaker, A Visionary Surgeon's Battle to Mend the Disfigured Soldiers of World War I, we've got links at our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. While you're there, if you haven't subscribed, please do. You'll get nerdy, in-depth interviews with scientists and science writers about the science they are most passionate about and learn more about the scientific issues that affect our world. Also, you can follow us on social media and give us feedback to tell us what you like and what you don't like about the show. We've also got a Patreon. We are listener supported and every small amount you can spare helps keep us independent. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. 